Another edition of the Arrive Early, Leave Late podcast. Thank you for joining us and listening. I'm your host, Bethel Duran. We continue to grow from every single episode. I have a lot of fun with it. Thank you for all the suggestions that you guys have, the feedback, uh, rate, review, share. I see all the tweets because what's the podcast gets out there? You know, the bosses tweet about it. The LA Times actual account tweets about it. I go to my at mentions and I usually try to avoid my mentions. But here when I know there's the LA Times one, it's a lot of positive stuff. You guys really like hearing stories from Bill Plasky. Helene Elliott was a big hit. I mean, you're a Hall of Famer. And every single person that works at the LA Times has a great story, especially how they cover the teams. And, you know, we could easily just say, hey, LeBron, 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 and get millions of downloads. It's not about that. It's about telling you the story in the perspective from an LA journalist, because it takes a lot to be an LA sports fan. There's so many teams here. You have your colleges, and then it's the hotbed for your own kids. It's a struggle. You know, I applaud all of you sports fans that are listening, and those of you that are not sports fans that are like tuning in to hear good storytelling. For so many years, there was no professional football in Los Angeles. And if you look now, two of the best teams in the NFL are here in L.A. with the combined record of 20-4 and four as we record this podcast. The L.A. Chargers, the L.A. Rams doing work in the NFL. And just to put that in perspective, right now the Bay Area teams, their record, 4-20. and 20. The New York Giants and Jets, 7-17. and 17. Sam Farmer covers the NFL as his beat for the L.A. Times. Sam, who said L.A. couldn't support two teams, and now we have two good ones? Beto, it, it's crazy when you think about two years ago, and the Rams were 4-12, and 12, the Chargers hadn't been to the playoffs in forever, and you know to think now that they're in sync this way is really amazing. I went back and looked at the Giants and Jets and how many times over their existence they were sort of in sync, winning at the same time, and, and really it's only a handful of times, and, and probably the best time, 19... 86 when the Giants won the Super Bowl and the and the Jets made it to the divisional playoffs but now to think that you know the Rams could be the number one seed in the NFC. They've certainly got the driver's seat now that New Orleans has lost to Dallas. They've got the best record in the NFC. And then the Chargers, the division is not out of the question. I mean, you look at Kansas City now, they lost Kareem Hunt. They released him. So that's going to change the dynamic of that team. I don't think it really showed up this weekend because they were playing the Raiders. And yet they gave up 33 points in that 40 to 33 went over the Raiders. So that defense in Kansas City gives up a lot of points. But I don't think the Raiders could really exploit the fact that they didn't have Kareem Hunt. But a better team like Baltimore, who the Chiefs are playing this weekend, are going to be able to exploit that. And potentially the Chiefs could lose. Then the Chargers play them on Thursday night football next week. So I think the AFC West is still up for grabs for the Chargers. And it's just mind-blowing to think that the Chargers and Rams could both win their divisions, especially after they seemed sort of adrift a couple of years ago. Now, you travel all over the United States covering the NFL. What's the perception of the LA Rams and the LA Chargers from a national perspective? You know, it's funny. I talked to Chris Collinsworth about this last week because they really have sort of diametrically opposed reputations uh, in that the Rams are this fresh new team with a young coach, coach of the year, Sean McVay last year, and potentially coach of the year this year. They've got the young, dynamic, ready-made for Hollywood quarterback in Jared Goff. They've got the offensive player of the year and potential MVP in Todd Gurley and and a potential MVP in, in Aaron Donald. Anyway, they're a star-studded team 
and they're going to be opening the stadium in 2020. It just seems like the stars have aligned for the Rams. With the Chargers, they're playing really well, but nationally, they aren't really well known. I mean, heading into the Sunday night game, it had been four years since they played on Sunday night football. So even Chris Collinsworth had to go back and look at some of these players and digest what the Chargers are on the field. Everybody knows Philip Rivers and people know Keenan Allen, but learning about Melvin Gordon, about Mike Williams, about Joey Boza, Melvin Ingram, it's still sort of a new team. And plus people look and they say, look, they play in a 27,000 seat soccer stadium that isn't full every week. And so nationally, they're sort of this enigma, but Clearly, when the lights were the brightest on Sunday night, they came through in a big way, and that was a milestone win for them to come down. Steelers have never lost when they've had a 16-point lead at home, and so for the Chargers to do that, they were like 174-0-1 and or something when they had a 16-point lead at home. Chargers came back down by 16 and won it in dramatic fashion, and it was sort of a national coming-out party. Four years since the Chargers were on Sunday Night Football. That's the marquee to finish the weekend. How does the team get picked for that? Because I know the Chargers originally weren't scheduled for that, right? Yeah, the Chargers weren't scheduled for that. And in fact, Los Angeles teams are on Sunday Night Football three weeks in a row. That's only happened once before with the Jets and Giants. And that was early in the season. That was weeks two through four uh, about 10 years ago. So it's really unusual that you'd have Chargers, Rams, Rams on Sunday Night Football. And both these games, Chargers at Pittsburgh and Rams at Chicago, the NFL flexed into those games because the existing games just weren't that good. You know, the Raiders, a Seahawks game, and the league just felt like we want to get A, the Chargers on Sunday Night Football. Steelers always draw well on Sunday Night Football. So that's sort of a a winner to get them on. And then to see how the Rams and Bears are doing, that was an ideal game. So sort of ironically, those two games were flexed into. The one game that was originally scheduled, Eagles at Rams, was a little bit in jeopardy because the Eagles were fading out of the picture. And so that game, they might have had to flex out of the game, which is almost inconceivable that you would flex out of a Sunday night game involving the defending Super Bowl champions. But had the Eagles lost Monday night to the Redskins, and really watch their playoff hopes go down the drain, they probably would have, the league probably would have flexed out of the Sunday night game, Eagles at Rams. But as it is, that's still a compelling game. So it's going to stay there. But yes, it's, you know, late in the season now, the league realizes that, hey, when we make up the schedule, we don't really know who's going to be the hot team in December. And so they reserve the right to flex out of those Sunday night games and move, you know, do a little shell game and move one game into that spot and pull something back into the afternoon. So, uh, but it's a, it's a real opportunity for LA. For so many years, you used to have the first question at the Super Bowl to the commissioner of when's football <laughs> coming to LA. Now you have two teams that look like they're headed towards the playoffs. How are you perceived by the NFL commissioner now? Does it, he's like looking at you like, yeah, Sam, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see at this Super Bowl. You know, I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility that you could have a Rams Chargers Super Bowl, which would blow everyone's mind. And it would be very interesting to see 
how ticket sales go next year. And But the commissioner's been out a couple times for both teams, and uh, he's still taking my questions. So I, I, I don't In truth, LA is still an open question. This is not a solved situation. The Rams have gotten traction. They're getting fans. They're putting fans in the seats. They're starting to sell PSLs for the new stadium. The Chargers are having a tougher time of that, even though they're getting it done on the field. And so I think the jury is still out on whether they can make this a successful move. Uh, Certainly hasn't been what they hoped for to this point, but on the field, Phillip Rivers and Anthony Lynn and, and those guys have certainly done their part. They've pulled their weight. They've provided a good product on the field. But now we're kind of waiting to see what happens when this big, new, sparkling $3 billion stadium opens up. What if there are lots of empty seats for Chargers games? So time will tell there, but the NFL is definitely keeping a watchful eye knowing that L.A. isn't resolved. Now, you wrote a story this week uh, about the Green Bay Packers, obviously in L.A. You have your Rams fans, you have your Charger fans, you have Raider fans, but because it's a transplant city and because football was gone for so long, you have kids who grew up picking teams from other places. Like a lot of my friends became Packers fans because they love Brett Favre. They fired their coach this weekend. And in the story you wrote, they lost to an Arizona team that Green Bay did to a kicker that had never won a game before, Zane Gonzalez. (laughs) It's crazy. I mean, if you look at all the elements of that game, you had Josh Rosen against Aaron Rodgers. He was 16-1 and in December at Lambeau Field. The Cardinals had not beaten the Packers at Lambeau Field or in Green Bay since 1949. Actually, Lambeau Field wasn't even built till 1958. And when the Cardinals last beat the Packers, Curly Lambeau was coach of the Packers. I mean, the Cardinals have a, they had nothing to play for. But pride, their offensive line was two rookies taken like the third and fifth round and three guys who hadn't been on the team more than a month. They're heading into Lambeau in 34 degree weather and 77,000 screaming fans and they go out there and win. It's, it's really remarkable. And it's a sort of a, a testament to how the Packers were spiraling down and really spiraling down ever since that kickoff against the Rams in the fourth quarter when Ty Montgomery fumbled took it out of the end zone, fumbled. The Rams come, win that game. They've lost five out of six since then, and the relationship has continued to deteriorate between Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy. And so this was an eventuality. But I am kind of shocked that a guy like McCarthy gets fired in the middle of the season. The Packers feel like, hey, this guy's going to land on his feet. You know, you could see him winding up in Cleveland, for instance, and coaching Baker Mayfield. And we want to get a head start, kind of like the Rams a couple of years ago when they fired Jeff Fisher toward the end of the season, got the head start, started their interviews, wound up with their superstar coach. Yeah, the kicker I mentioned, Zane Gonzalez, as you wrote in your story, went to Arizona State, played one season in Cleveland, 0-16, this year a loss and a tie, and he gets his first victory at Green Bay. That's what I love reading your story because you go and you find these different things. Everybody knows you, the different angles. I don't know how this NFL season is going to play out for the Chargers, who I do the postgame show for on AM570, but I do feel like they're starting to gain fans. And I think you and I both agree, though. If you win, you get the fans who are going to start looking. The Rams have that strong fan base, but their quarterback, Jared Goff, can walk right past you And he looks like a kid who's probably working at the mall or Costco. He doesn't have that L.A. star power. 
right? Am I wrong? That's right. Absolutely thinks that's the case. I mean, Jared is not a physically imposing guy, but I, I agree with you. I think this was a good game for the Chargers to get traction, to do this on the national stage for Phillip Rivers, who's done this. It's it's really interesting, Beto, just the talk now how it shifted about Philip Rivers. And people are starting to wrap their heads around the fact that this guy has put together a Hall of Fame career without the hardware. Tony Gonzalez said this is the best quarterback in NFL history without a Super Bowl victory. And that's an amazing statement when you think that Dan Marino's out there without a Super Bowl victory, that Jim Kelly is 0-4 in Super Bowls. And Philip Rivers has only played in one AFC championship game. Now, it was an incredible performance at New England. They lost, but he played on a torn ACL and really gritted it out. But he's beloved. He's His wife's having their ninth child, which is pretty amazing. And I do think this is a landmark win for them at Pittsburgh. It'd be very interesting to see if they can sort of turn the corner as a franchise. I know confidence-wise, I was down there uh, at the locker room Outside the locker room, I actually went into the Steelers locker room to get a reaction after the game. But uh, I waited as Philip came down after his interview on the field, going into the Chargers locker room. And he was yelling. I've never heard him yell louder. I mean, he was at the top of his lungs. He was so excited about this win. And for good reason. I mean, they made history. They did something that a lot of people didn't expect them to do. So as I said, I think the AFC West title is still within reach for the Chargers. Sam Farmer covering the NFL. I mean, when you look at your schedule, have you ever covered an L.A. team in the playoffs? No, right? Well, you know, the, the Rams were in the playoffs last year. Uh, they played... One game. Right. They played Atlanta because I was on the road when they played Atlanta at the Coliseum. Bill Plaschke was at the Coliseum for that game. I was in New Orleans okay, where the Saints... Uh, beat the Panthers in the first round. So I sort of anticipated that the Rams would be moving on to the divisional round, but that was a uh, (laughs) sort of a stunning upset that the Falcons would come out and beat them at the Coliseum. And I really think the Rams can take something from that loss. A lot of the same players are on the team, and I think they can say, listen, we're a more mature team now. We are a team with some playoff experience. Uh, We can use that playoff experience to realize this time around that every snap counts, every second counts. And so the intensity level kicks up during the postseason. And I do think it's interesting, too, that the Chargers, you know, they're in a very unusual situation because it's almost like they're playing 16 road games. Uh, Often it's a 50-50 split in fans between their own fans and fans from the opposing team. That's hard during the regular season, but I think that might make you battle-tested during the playoffs. I think that might make you a better team. You're not tethered to having that. You don't need the security of playing at home. You can win on the road, and you've shown that. And you think about the Eagles last year, and this is a constant theme that you see in the NFL. Coaches try to almost synthesize disrespect and grab onto that. And the Eagles with the dog masks, the underdogs, we're all we need. That was their saying. They really rode that feeling of disrespect. Whether it existed or not, they were going to milk it for everything it's worth. Well, the Chargers get a truckload of disrespect every week in their own stadium. They've got it coming out of their ears. And they rightfully can say, we don't get national respect. It's us against the world. And I think that could really help them in the postseason and make them sort of, as I said, a battle-tested team and a dangerous team. Sam Farmer with the state of L.A. football in the middle of December. Oh, it's only going to get better. Because, Sam, we're talking to you all of January. You know that, right? 
February two. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want to hear. I want to. I want to stand next to you when you're asking the commissioner about NFL football in LA. That sounds great. You can. I'll save you a seat. Sam Farmer, appreciate you. Talk to you later, Sam. All right, Beto. Good talking to you, buddy. Now it's time for a quick break of something I'm looking forward to. The legendary Momentum Generation crew, including Kelly Slater, Rob Machado, and Shane Dorian, reunite to tell their story together for the first time as HBO Sports explores how a group of dedicated teenagers changed surfing and its culture forever in the 1990s. From executive producer Robert Redford and directors Jeff and Michael Zimbalist, don't miss Momentum Generation, Tuesday, December 11th at 10 p.m., only on HBO. Dylan Hernandez, columnist for the LA Times. Where are you coming from? Pasadena. You're in Pasadena. Is that where you grew up? South Pass, yeah. So South Pass. So see, you get what I'm saying about LA. Right. And then you went away for your first couple of jobs, right? First job. Your first uh, I was job. in San Jose for five years and then I came back. All right. So you went to UCLA? Yeah. So you know the struggle. That, that 110 to the 10 to get to 405? It's yeah, hard. It's terrible. Right? Yeah. No, my brother, you know, he works at UCLA. He's, oh, a, no. he's a doctor. Oh, um, you're the black sheep yeah. of the family? <laughs> yeah. You are. Well, funny, you? I was supposed to be the doctor. It just didn't quite work out that Were way. Were you really? Yeah. I mean, I did well on like testing and stuff. You know, I wasn't a very good student in the uh, first quarter in school. I remember the exact moment I decided to not be a doctor. I had an 8 a.m. class and uh, the third time it met, my alarm was ringing. And I just remember thinking, you know what? I'll just be something else. <laughs> This is at UCLA. Yeah. So that was the first week. That was the third day of class. The third day of class. I just was not. Your Japanese mother must be so proud of you. Yeah. Does she know uh, what you do? Yeah. But I mean, she's Japanese. So her whole sense of She's from Japan, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and she didn't move here until like her 20s. She doesn't get our society at all, right? Like, because uh, over there, it's like you you test, right? Like, if you um, if you work at a newspaper over there, like a thousand people like apply, and you actually just take a test, like a general knowledge test, right? And what they'll do is they'll like accept on a given year, say, okay, we'll add six new employees, and whoever scored the best gets assigned politics. That's how they do. Yeah, that. and so it gets kind of gets stratified depending on how good you are, you know, the, whoever. The last person they let in goes to like sports or entertainment or something. Are you serious? So, Wait, the sports journalists in Japan are viewed as like not the smartest yeah, ones? Yeah. See, it's hard to like describe this because like, again, culturally, it's kind of different, right? But like your emotional strength okay. because there's so much memorization involved, right? If you actually compare like a Japanese reporter, for example, right, who went through their schooling system to like an American journalist, you'll notice this like say like this coming week at the winter meetings in baseball when people are just waiting around. Like they're really good at just waiting, Right. Yeah. Well, I've seen it. And not, and they don't like move with, too much. Sui was with the Angels, or right. It, it, it would you? Just, but they're really good at just kind of waiting. You right. know, Americans, we get jittery, right? Oh, yeah. look, we you know, we complain. Yeah. Right. But when you look at like the political reporters, it's a whole nother level of like they're like completely still. Really? Yeah. It shows like this real emotional. Strength, you wouldn't so. hack it in Japan, would no, you? No. So like, I mean, because. <laughs> I mean, because like over there too, like you have a lot of like, uh, you know, our homeless, for example, are a lot of uh, mentally ill people, drug addicts, stuff like that, right? I mean, it's that's starting to change now because our entire society is collapsing. But in Japan, like those people get taken care of. Well, first of all, there are no drugs over there, right? And, you know, the mentally ill get taken care of because they have health care for all. So, you know, a lot of people that kind of end up homeless are actually like kind of, they're capable, but they just kind of like, okay, I don't want to be in this rat race thing. And if you go to the back of like the Tokyo Dome, for example, it's kind of like this homeless like encampment out there. And they have like really nice cardboard box houses. And they like run wires in there and they have cable TV. And they also know, for example, like if you go to 7-Eleven in Japan, 
You can have like dinner there, right? 7-Eleven is like nice. Like they sell really good food at 7-Eleven. And part of the reason is- Is it called 7-Eleven? Yeah. Okay. And because everything's fresh. I've never been to Japan. So every learning. evening, like they throw out the food from that day so that they can get fresh food the next day. And the homeless know this, like at what time. So they make lines back there. And so what my mom always tells me, like when she gets mad at me, is like, you couldn't even be homeless in Japan. Because you can't hack it. <laughs> right. You've been to Japan a bunch of times? Uh, I used to go like every other year when I was a okay. kid. Yeah. And then you've covered baseball in Japan, right? I mean, like for a week. I no, but I'm saying you, you've week. seen baseball yeah, games. Yeah, I have. Okay, what's the difference between watching the game in Japan and watching the United States? It doesn't feel like as big a production, honestly. Like here, it's like really baseball in and of itself is a business, right? Whereas in Japan, all the teams are owned by corporations. So the purpose of the baseball team isn't to make money in and of itself, right? It's to promote their parent company. So the Tokyo Giants, for example, are owned by like the Yomiuri newspaper and their job is to promote Yomiuri newspapers. So I think actually most of these teams in Japan actually lose money, right? You know, Seibu Lions are owned by the Seibu train line, right? The Lotte Marines are owned by Lotte, the candy company. So, you know, as an American, when you go there, you can just see how just sick we are with our consumerism and stuff. You Like you look around the stadium, you're like, well, they're not making a very efficient use of their space here. You know, they should be, they could be selling stuff here or they could be charging more for this. Or So when you kind of go there, it's kind of weird. It's almost like a little bit like kind of covering like a minor league game even. Really? Yeah. But the fans are into their teams, Well, right? because also though, if you work for one of those companies, you had to go to X amount of games a year. Really? Yeah. And so you knew all the cheers. So like, it, that's why every, they cheer in unison. They have cheers in Japan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, they cheer the entire game. They like, have like, like thunder sticks. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I, that's one of my goals is to go watch a game in Japan. Yeah. Well, it's totally different. They bunt like crazy. Yeah. And you know, when I went to go see Otani, so he was still playing in Japan at the time. And the visiting team, guy puts down a sack bunt and they stop the game and they come out and they bring flowers to him because it was his 200th career sacrifice bunt. Nah, nah, nah. The okay. record is nah. like, the record was nah, like nah. 550 or something. Like, I'm a team player. I'm not that much though. You know, and it was, it was kind of funny. So like, there are a bunch of obviously American scouts over there and yeah. we were all kind of laughing afterwards. Like, how many runs do you think that guy has cost his team over his entire career, you know? <laughs> the, uh, and when I went out with the Japanese reporters afterwards, I was kind of joking about that and they were telling me, see, that's why you're not really Japanese. Like, you don't understand the spirit of the sack bunt. There's a spirit to the sack bunt? Yeah, sacrificing the individual nah, for the whole. forget that. Get me a chance to get some RBIs to get paid. I'm going to Boris Corporation. They're going to give me money <laughs> for that. They ain't paying you to sacrifice. Like, they ain't paying you to play defense. That's why... Um, Speaking of the other half of my parentage, by the way, my dad is a huge fan of this podcast. Is your dad listening? I mean, yeah, he'll, he'll be listening. He's going to listen? Yeah, he listens, right. he listens every What's week. What's your dad's name? Dago. Dago? Dagoberto. Dagoberto? Oh, like, like Bert Campaneris. Yeah. Bert Campaner's real name is Dagoberto. So as an yeah. Umberto, I salute Dagoberto. Well, his dad was Umberto. See? Salvadorian, <laughs> Japanese. You are so L.A., Dylan Hernandez. Back to the Japanese baseball. It's always intrigued me. Now, the Mexican baseball players that I know, the ones that are like from Mexico, not the Mexican-Americans, when they will play in the United States, get a cup of coffee, and then go to Japan and make millions and get treated like kings out there. These guys tell me that they have everything that they need, but the difference is they're not viewed as North Americans that they love them out there. And these guys just go and hit bombs and they make millions where they can go to the minor leagues in the United States, make 15000 maybe a, a month. Why do they love the foreign player over there? Well, usually because they're better. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay. You know, there's not much, again, like it's, it's a league with a lot of bunting, right? There's not a okay. ton of power. You know, like even in Japan right now, right? Like Otani's kind of from like this northern like rural area, okay. which wasn't heavily scouted before. And like right now, for example, there's another kid... I guess would be like a high school junior right now. And the kid throws like 98. 
and he's again like six foot four kind of monster type body. Otani's also this kind of huge kid. So the players there are getting bigger, but you know, for the most part, like it's kind of the stereotype, right? I mean, the Ichiro, you Single know, is kind sacrifice. of yeah, okay. you know, usually foreigners are able to bring an element of power that doesn't exist. And I think also the players look like they're having fun over there, right? And the, the thing is like you can celebrate home runs without it being because uh, over there they don't throw at people for the most part. They don't. No. You were in Detroit watching the Rams? Yeah, it wasn't the best of games, but man, you know what though, man? Uh, what's his name? Aaron Donald is just... Stud. Yeah. You know, and I wrote this, that it's like watching like Tyson in his prime or Nolan Ryan when he threw really hard, or right? It's kind of this like, you know what's coming and it kind of doesn't matter, right? I mean, there were those back-to-back possessions in the fourth quarter, right? The Rams can't move the ball. I think their lead is down to three. In the first of those possessions, he gets that sack, forces the other team to punt. Goff still can't move the ball. And then he comes up with that strip sack that really kind of changed the game. You know, Gurley scores on that thing. You kind of know it's coming. They double teamed him on that play, right, where he had that strip sack. And he just is physically, it looks like a man playing with children, you know. And you're kind of thinking. And he's going up against grown men that are 300 plus pounds on the offensive line. Yeah. And he just dominates. And it's kind of like absurd to think even, okay, like especially like in this NFL climate, right, that a defensive player could win MVP. But like. Is he that good? I mean, the way the league is right now, right? You just need a couple stops. He's going to get you that stop when you need it. You look at, like, even that Kansas City game. As ridiculous as that game was, he made a couple big plays that, you know, in the end made the difference between a a winner and a loss. R.I.P. San Jose Sabercats and L.A. Avengers. Aaron Donald, your column was about him uh, when you went to Detroit. That you know him, but what kind of guy is he? I've never been around him. My understanding is that he's usually pretty soft-spoken. You know, you talk to the beat guys, him and Sue, are, I don't think, are the most... Well, Sue has personality. Yeah, although I think it kind of it comes out selectively, yeah. right? And I, it doesn't seem like they've been interacting with the press all too much beyond I don't the minimum. Really hear yeah, on this day, they secured the division title. They were in a very kind of celebratory mood. So everyone was in a really good mood. Uh, he was in a good mood. Sue was in a great mood. Hey, so you win, everybody's good. That's where it leads me to, though. The L.A. Rams, one of the best teams, however you want to debate it. They're on the path. Everything's lining up for them to head to the Super Bowl. You know, knock on wood if you're a Rams fan. But in L.A., you're a columnist. You have your pulse on what's going on. And you know what's going to drive readership. This is a team that you see their players walking down the street. It's still hard to identify with them, right? Yeah, they haven't quite crossed over there yet, right? Yeah. I mean, I do think... They sell at the stadium. They, they, they get the big fans, 70,000 plus. They've got the marquee games, but it's still not... I just don't feel like there's the big, big buzz. Yeah, I think maybe the playoffs will change that. That's why, like, initially, I was kind of thought it was a really a lost opportunity last year when they got knocked out in that first, in their playoff opener. Because I think in L.A., a lot of times, like, the season starts in the postseason. But I do think in over the offseason, something changed a little bit. I think it was actually when they signed Sue, right? And they started making these moves... But I think Sue was the kind of one that made people realize, like, well, you know what? Maybe this team has a chance to kind of be special. They kind of have that rock star head coach. Goff is a franchise quarterback. Obviously, he's not like the most colorful personality. They might have the best offensive player in the league in Todd Gurley. There are some pieces there. And I do think that if the, you know, the playoffs come around, that's when people are going to start paying attention. You know, because I think also when you look at kind of the difference between national followings and, and local followings, local fans, I think, live for moments, right? What they remember are moments. What moment of real joy did you give me, right? You think back to your childhood, say like that Gibson home run, 
Yeah. That's why it means so much to everybody, right? Oh, yeah. It's not. So they have know, a bobblehead of him 30 yeah, years later. Right. It's because like everybody remembers where they were that moment and what they were feeling. So the Rams at this point haven't had the opportunity to give people those moments yet, but I think it'll come. One of your tweets after Sunday's game are Pulitzer's awarded for video Gary Klein, who covers the team, <laughs> a great uh, video of Aaron Donald doing the happy dance as they clinch the division. You're in Detroit, but I know you're a big boxing fan. Did you watch Fury and Wilder? Yeah, so Anthony Fenich, my buddy who covers the Detroit Tigers for the Detroit Free Press, came out to dinner with us. I went out with Gary Klein and Kevin Baxter and Lindsay Theory of ESPN. And when we were done, we raced across to Dearborn, which is a local suburb. And they were showing the fight in a theater. And really? Theater? In a theater. Okay. Yeah, uh, Fathom Entertainment. And I guess, yeah, like yeah. The, I guess the Canelo fight is yeah. going to be, they're doing that too, right? I think you can watch the fight at LA Live. That's yeah, one of the places em. that, uh-huh. and you could have watched the Fury fight too at the theater there at you know. I've never Live. done it, but I've heard it's a cool experience. Yeah, so we get there though, and it's closed. Box office is closed, but they're showing the fight inside. Okay. So somebody. Oh yeah, you're in mid- Midwest. So yeah, it's like what, eleven o'clock probably. Yeah, so Late? somebody came out. So we snuck in. We talked to the person there. Can I pay you? You have to talk to my manager. I think she might be in the theater, or whatever. So we go in and. We got kicked out, man. You got kicked out? Yeah, they would not take our... I offered. I was like, hey, look, I'll give you cash. Wait, you're trying to pay to get I'm in. I'm trying to pay to get it. And the thing is that there was no one in there. There were two people, literally two people in the entire theater watching that fight. Wait, you opened the door and you saw the theater? We saw, Well, we sat down. We watched like maybe like a round. Wait, you sat down and yeah, they kicked and you then, out? Yeah, and then the manager came in looking for us because I think the first guy ratted us out. Wait a minute. Wait. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. You sat down. Yes. You're in the theater. Yes. And you're trying to give them money. Yes. Hey, I, I'm not sneaking in. Yeah. Well, I did, but here's money. Right. No, you got to go? Yeah. Because their computers are all turned off. And the but, thing is that the lady goes like, <laughs> it's telling me like, well, you know, the thing started at eight o'clock or whatever. And I'm like, I didn't want to watch the undercard. Yeah, they don't These know. These undercards are terrible. They don't know. So, you know, I don't know. You know. So they, they made you get up. Yeah. We had to we'd get up and leave. Where'd you go? I watched the fight some other way. Okay. Where do you stand on this? Right. Because okay. it was dramatic. Yeah, the last round was dramatic. But it was also, like, very kind of, like, low level, right? Well, and, like, let's be honest. like They, no, they it, landed a, com- a combined 150 punches or something. It wasn't the most uh, technically sound fight. No, it was terrible. And this is just me. And I'm not going to lie. And I'm going to say this, and a lot of boxing fans are going to be like, how can you say that? But I did not like Ward Gotti. I was, like, offended. Okay, that's podcast like, over. Done. That's, like, that's um, like a disgusting th- th- fight. This is, I'm, no, it's, like, complete lack of skill. Get out of here. Where's Lance? Where's Lance Plugmeyer? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, Lance is, like, evoking, like, the, the ghost of Sonny Liston describing oh, this thing. Okay, this was a good fight, a fun fight. It wasn't one where you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But it did get the buzz going. It, Staples Center was sold out. But you sent this tweet. Garbage fight, hashtag, like Dylan said. What if... Like Dylan said. Yeah, I, well, I wrote a column leading into it about how Tyson Fury was this fantastic, colorful personality. And I just said, oh, it's a shame he can't fight better. Well, I actually think he might be like one of the most entertaining. He, he's a character. Yeah, he's characters a like, you know, I mean, since like Ali. This is who Dylan Hernandez is. He sends a tweet about a story he wrote about Tyson Fury. Staples Center will host the latest uninspiring heavyweight, quote, championship boxing match Saturday. Why do you do that? Why? Why not just write a lead? Tyson Fury is so-and-so, so-and-so, and so But you have to, like, take the digs right away. Why? Well, so people know what's coming. I don't want to, like, falsely advertise it. Like, hey, read about this great fighter. I mean, he's not. Nobody, he's a great entertainer. Then why write the story? Because it's the heavyweight championship still. It, it was here. I had, like, I don't know. Like, I have to write an X amount of times a week. But here's the thing, though, right? Is that I actually, I, I, I would argue that I, 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 
love boxing more than any of these people. You do. That, you that are a big get, fan. That get mad at me for writing these things. I, I write about these things because I care. Yes, you do. Right? And I it bothers me when people come and say, like, really blasphemous stuff, right? Like, these guys, I'm sorry, these guys are not good. Like, I wish they were. I was on the Anthony Joshua bandwagon as long as I possibly could. Yeah, the heavyweight champ out of England. Yeah, and then, like, look, like, you go life or death with, like, a four, however old Klitschko was. I don't know how whatever. In his 40s. 40s, whatever. I'm sorry. Like, if he was the real deal, he would have gone in there and cleaned the guy out in three rounds. You're just that guy that sends food back no matter what, huh? No, that's not. You're true. never I mean, happy. I'm a actually. Okay, you're I'm a big Mikey Garcia fan. Who else do I like right now? I like Terrence Crawford. Okay, Bud Crawford. Okay, you know I'm optimistic about Lomachenko. I'm curious what will happen if he gets a jab and like a real jab in his face. All right. I'm not. So your stand is just super. High. You're you're a wine. It's not because I've you're been a watching... wine drinker, right? Yeah. You're not going to two buck chuck, huh? Oh no. No, no. You no. you, you yeah. have that fancy palate, right? Yes. That's yes, just yes. like your taste in boxing. It is. You have. You grew up on Tyson. Yes. You saw him annihilate people. Right. That's what you want. Yeah, it is. You're lucky right now if you have a guy either with good legs or like a good upper body. And very few guys right now can make both work at the same time, you know? And go back and like watch these fights from the 80s and they're all up there. Look at how many body parts are like moving at the same time. Like how many subtle little feints are in there. It's like watching chess and like they're playing checkers now. My dad used to take me to like when I was at UCLA, we'd go to, he'd pick me up when they had forum boxing. Yeah. Yeah, like a Friday. Like Michael Carvajal, all those guys. That- Yo, no, but I was, I mean, I'm talking about foreign boxing when I said it's like decline. Oh, I think decline. And, okay. it, and it turned into like just a bunch of club fights. I mean, the Marquez brothers. I work club fights all the time. The, so the I Marquez know. brothers fought there. Yeah. Uh, Henry Brucellis, kind of an up and coming prospect. He got destroyed by Mayweather. Yeah, Oscar Deloya made his debut there. You know, I can watch those things. You but know, can and- you just say, hey, you know what? That was fun. No, you can't. You yeah, can't just no, say no. things are well, fun. Well, because like, I think to me, like, what's really the most impressive thing is how the best fighters remain calm in the heat of battle, so to speak. These guys like Andre Ward and Floyd Mayweather that can right that have the courage to sit in there, not just the courage, but also like the technical skill to sit in there, and make a guy barely miss. It's technical, it's courage, it's it's kind of all those things. Uh, and to me, it's not quite the same when you remove the technical aspect from it. To me, what makes it impressive is the technique. To me, what makes things impressive are like certain feats of athleticism, right? And, and the thing is, like, you know, they talk about, like, well, Tyson Fury moves well. You know, what made Ali amazing at the time was that, like, he was a heavyweight who moved like a middleweight, if not a guy even smaller than that. You know, he, right? would, he would float like a butterfly. He would float like a butterfly. And then, then he would sting like a bee. <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard that one. Let me just put it on the shirt. Uh, do you like LeBron? LeBron is, just, I don't know. Yeah, you know. you Because you don't write much about basketball. I but. haven't been out there to, I think I've been to three Laker games this year. Okay. You know, I just want to hear your person. Do you like LeBron? After you've hated everything about boxing, you hate all big men, do you like LeBron? I mean, I think he's good for the market. I don't know him yet. You know, that's the thing. It's like, I don't know him, okay. right? All right, here, you I said have, it. I have met. Good I, for the market, though. Why do you say that? Great for the market. Because he's the biggest star in sports. Okay, the NFL has done this thing where the game is almost like incidental. Right. It's yep. like come get drunk and watch half naked women on our sidelines. And by the way, come there's this, tailgate for there's eight this hours game this, yeah. that's going on that you can gamble. It starts on, and stops. And starts that you can and indirectly stops. gamble on through like your fantasy league. But as far as the actual like games and the actual athletes, like the NBA, I really think is kind of like our cultural driver right now. Right. Especially in L.A. Yeah. And LeBron is the biggest star in that sport. I do think, you know, at least when I've been out there. He's still in the process of winning over the fans, right? It's not like... Why do you say that? Because when he comes out, pregame introduction, he gets a nice ovation, but it's not like that, like when Kobe was, right? There's still fans, do you feel, are tentative towards the Yeah, LeBron? I think they're, you know, he's, you can yeah, see... Yeah, the Kobe he, stands. He's in, no the pro- right, he's in the process of winning them over. I, I was at that game when uh, he went off for like 40-something, yeah. right? And at the end, finally, you know, 
last few minutes, he finally got like an MVP chat right after putting the team on his back and completely taking over the game. You know, but like, I think we're still in the process of getting to know who he is. You have to respect the fact, right, that every shoot around, he talks because he understands his responsibility as this franchise icon. You obviously, you kind of have to respect, you know, well, look the, what the, the, stuff, the stuff that he's done off the court. Times has Tanya Ganguly, Brad Turner, current team. Plashky's always there or somebody's writing a column about it. The video department's there. It's, you have to cover these stars and I like it. LA, you need to have stars. Yes. And you can write about the most interesting human in the world, but if he ain't a star, you're not going to get people to resonate with you. That's why to this day, Magic Johnson still lights up a room in LA. He can go do whatever he wants. Kobe Bryant, like him or hate him, at the end of the day, they're going to clap for him. It's interesting you bring that up about LeBron because I've been thinking the same thing about how the fans, they're liking him because he's wearing a Laker uniform. But you still have the ones that are saying, Kobe would have done this or (laughs) Magic would have done that. He ain't a real Laker. It's going to take some time for those hardcore fans to buy into him. But at the same time, though, you have those teenagers who are like, cool, let me get that number 23 jersey. You have the kids, the next generation of it. Because people like you, your age, they're stuck in their ways. They're salty. They're going to be <laughs> mad. They're sending back that perfect steak at the five-star restaurant. They're, but it's the next generation. Do you enjoy sports, Dylan? I'll say this. And you don't know when it's going to happen. But on this job, there are two to three times a year that you see something that you never thought you would see. Oh, and really, to me, those are the kind of the moments that are interesting, right? Like, it's just like, wow, I never thought I was going to see that. And that's kind of why I like sports is that it's this arena in which people can, you know, strive for greatness, so to speak. And, you know, every now and then some guy will actually be even better than you imagined he would be. JT Daniels. His scrimmage. Quarterback of USC. Yes. When JT Daniels does not have to get tackled, he is amazing. <laughs> you know, I, I talked to Brady McCullough, our beat guy, and he had told me how good this kid was. And so I kind of went there to the scrimmage with high expectations. And Daniels was even better than I imagined he would be. You know, those are kind of those few times a year. And you're kind of, you leave there and you're like, wow, that was really cool. I was really glad I got to see that. Sports, you know? every single time you go out there, you'll never see the same thing twice. Yeah. It's a different story, different angle. Dylan O. Hernandez is his Twitter. Let him know how much you love this podcast. As always, Dylan, it's fun talking with you, man. Appreciate it. Good stuff from Sam Farmer. Imagine that. What if there is an all LA Super Bowl? That means this podcast, we're going on the road. And uh, you're like, Dylan Hernandez is a guy who is interesting. Most of the time, it's tongue in cheek and he's just messing with you guys. But I just like him on the podcast because it gives you a chance to hear from the horse's mouth what he's up to. You guys want to say, I don't want to hear him anymore. He's coming back because I got to ask him about some wine. If I talk about it, maybe he'll bring some in. The Arrive Early, Leave Late podcast, produced by Dave Wine, engineered by Mike Heflin. Angel Rodriguez is the sports editor. I am your host, Bethel Duran. Arrive Early, Leave Late, an LA Times Studios production.